On this episode of the Trauma-Informed Podcast with your host, Jeff Friedman, we have a very special guest, and that guest is Michelle Finneran. Dr. Finneran is a a licensed therapist in Florida, and um, she's an expert in domestic violence and just uh, published a new book uh, regarding uh, domestic violence survivors and she sits down and talks with me and shares her wisdom about uh, domestic violence. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listener, listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, Michelle. Well, thanks a lot for joining me here. It's great to, great to chat with you this morning. So if you could just tell me a little bit about, about yourself and where, where you grew up and, and how, how the place you grew up in influenced you to where you are today. Okay. Well, I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, which is southeast of Pittsburgh. It's, it's on the border of Pittsburgh. It's in Mahoney County. And I was, I, I was born there, but I wasn't raised there. We, as a family, we moved at a very young age to Boca Raton, Florida. And the reason why we moved is because my, my dad had a family business with my grandfather and a mushroom cannery operation and growing operation. And they had a very contentious relationship. So we decided to pick up um, and move to Boca Raton, Florida. And that's how I, w- that's where I was raised. Oh. And then I went to school, I went to high school in Boca Raton. I grew up there and then eventually I went away to college at Stetson University in Deland. I still have relatives in Youngstown, Ohio that I haven't seen in a while, but miss them very much. And that's where I was raised and kind of, kind of grew up. All right. So if you could tell me a little bit about how, you know, that's in between there, growing up there in Ohio uh, and moving to Boca and how, what led you to become a uh, therapist? Well, I think that, you know, at a very at a very young age, my dad and my, my grandfather and my dad had a very contentious relationship, and my dad came from an abusive household, and it was he saw he experienced a lot of abuse and he also witnessed a lot of domestic violence in his home, with his family of origin, with my grandfather and my grandmother. So at a very early age, my dad could really like too young, too young of an age confided in me and talked to me about his abuse and how it affected him. And it was extremely emotional. And I think I, I didn't have the skills. at how, that. Um, how old were you at the time? I, I want to say I was elementary, middle school. It was that that young and it was. It was too young for me because I didn't have obviously the coping skills or the or the advice to give him. All I could really be was an empathetic listener and, and be loving to, to him. I felt I felt really bad for him, I had a lot of empathy for him. But he confided in me and was very descriptive in his abuse and very descriptive in his trauma that he experienced in his house. And it, I I felt like that transmission of trauma 
you know, came over to me as a young person growing, growing up, hearing about this continuously throughout my life, never really experiencing myself direct trauma or abuse. But because he was so descriptive in his abuse and his trauma, I really kind of like felt his pain, you know, and I was really like, really saw his abuse through his eyes. And I was, I was traumatized by what he went through, through him. And so at a very early age, I, you know, was, had always had a counselor heart because of that experience growing up. And in high school, I was always, I was, I kind of had friends with everyone. I didn't discriminate against anyone. And it seemed like, you know, people felt comfortable coming to me and talking to me. And I didn't really necessarily need that back in return. I was just happy to help people and be there for them. And then when it's when I hit Stetson University that I started taking psychology classes that I began to really excel in these classes. And it was when I started working at a crisis intervention stabilization unit in Daytona Beach, Florida, that I really like put some of the things that I learned at Stetson into practice and really gravitated to the, 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 to the mental health field and the population. But it really, it really started a very, on a very early age, just trying to be there for my, my father. And okay, so from, from Stetson and your time at the, the center in Daytona, what, how did you get into, yeah, how did you get into the specialization with domestic violence and your, your eventual the book publication? Yeah. So after Stetson, before, before I graduated from Stetson, I got accepted to Nova Southeastern University where I did my master's program and eventually did my um, PhD program in conflict resolution and dispute analysis. And in 2000, I want to say in 2005 to 2007, I worked for a local jail and I worked in a unit and a domestic violence, anger management, and conflict resolution unit for inmates, incarcerated female women. And it was there that I discovered that these, these women that I was speaking to, I would do group counseling, I would do individual counseling with them. These incarcerated women were, a lot of them were just, you know, victims of domestic violence. And I really kind of baffled, I was really kind of shocked actually to, to see so many victims incarcerated. So I, I, I discussed with, in that time I was in my PhD program, I discussed with my, my chair and my committee, like doing extensive research on survivors and victims and what is helpful and not helpful in using certain systems like law enforcement or mental health or the judicial system or their clergy. Yeah, that's a good, that's a, uh, what, when you bring that up, uh, what, one thought that comes to my mind, I've heard with some certain communities, like certain activist groups, particularly I, I've found it, well, both sides of like the kind of like libertarian groups and really left-wing groups uh, that some of them sort of advocate not, not get involving these parties like the, the police, ideally. They, they, they think that it's sort of counterproductive in these kinds of situations. So, uh, right. I guess, yeah, well, what's, what's your opinion about that? When do you think it's well, appropriate to use and what, what are the, the cost benefits? Yeah, I think, I think uh, with, 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 different, with different community, with different services like law enforcement, it, I mean, it was necessary to, for them to get called because they couldn't stop 
the, the victimization or the abuse. But yeah. in essence, what happened was a lot of the times, a lot of these women felt re-victimized re, re by law enforcement right. officers, particularly male, male officers. And there is a gender difference that I found out while researching and interviewing some of these survivors that survivors felt much more comfortable when a, a female law enforcement were um, consoling them or nurturing them or talking to them. So there's definitely there's definitely pros and cons to each type of um, service and support that women facilitated. And they were pretty vocal about what worked and what didn't work. For instance, for mental health therapists, you know, what, what they found, survivors found that did not work was someone who was passive, a therapist that was passive or just yes ma'am them to death or just was not challenging or just gave them like work or homework that didn't relate to what they were going through. So, I mean, therapists that are empathetic and were able to process their stories of abuse were pretty important. Allowing that process to happen in a therapeutic setting is something that relatively did not happen. And so that was very necessary for the survivors or victims at that time to do that, to process, because for many of many of these women, it's the first time that they're talking about it. Right. Yeah. And, and what, how did the book develop? So I, I, I did the dissertation on, on, you know, this topic and, you know, I really, I, I just, it never, it never kind of left me as to, I thought this was just really important information to get out for, you know, people who support or service domestic violence victims or survivors. And I just couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it go. And so eventually what I started doing is thinking about making the dissertation into a book format. So I had contacted a couple of publishing companies that were academic in nature because this was an academic research book. And so I got a hold of Rutledge Taylor and Francis Company in the UK and they asked me to, they listened to my ideas. They, I, we've exchanged emails. They listened to my ideas and they asked me to write a proposal. And I wrote a proposal and then eventually had to rework the entire dissertation to fit a book manuscript. And then I submitted it this past year and it just got recently got um, published and released in July of this year. Wow. Um, so it took, it took about a year to get everything organized and, and facilitated organization and structure to the book. And that's through Taylor and Francis? That's through, that's through Taylor and Francis. Yeah. Rutledge. Yeah. So that, and it was, it was something, you know, me and my 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 Beckham associates associate at the time, Natalie Natalie Vecchione, helped me to organize it, edit it, have a second eyes, and it really just manifested in itself. And it took it took a lot of time, and it took a lot of forward thinking as to how I wanted it to lay out and be worded. Yeah, and then so our, our previous conversation, you talked about the, the trauma bonding and domestic violence survivors. So maybe you could explain a little bit what that means and how you think that's relevant for your work and your research with domestic violence. Yeah, I, I see a lot of in my in my in my clinical practice, I see a lot of trauma, particularly with women and either their mother or their father, adult women 
And so I see a lot of that in my practice and how we, we talk about the ego and we talk about, you know, particularly with mother and daughter relationships, it's really, I found that doing the research that I did, that mother and daughter relationship is extremely, extremely imperative and parallels to the, to the, the woman's or the daughter's intimate partner relationship. And so that traumatic bonding that happens with mother and daughter, meaning that there's not very much of an attachment for mother. Mother is, it's usually a narcissistic mother of some sort or a victim herself mother. They are physically there for their daughters, help them babysit with tangible things, money, help move, but they're not emotionally available for a lot of these, for a lot of their daughters. And so with that being said, there is this kind of bonding that's traumatized with the detached mother that it's inevitable you are accustomed to the familiar. So they seek out usually the similar types of traits with their intimate partner relationships. And this this emotional traumatic bonding happens where victims and perpetrators establish this traumatic bond. And this is the one of the reasons why a lot of people don't understand why the victim just won't leave is because it's an emotional traumatic bonding that stems from the victim, you know, feeling sorry for their perpetrator, making excuses for their perpetrator, you know. So what I, what I examined in, in the book is something called the Stockholm syndrome. Right. And we talked a little bit about that previously, where in the Stockholm Syndrome, there was a relationship, an actual traumatic bonding between hostage and hostee. And that's similar, what I found in a lot of these interviews that I did with these survivors, that that's parallel to, to their relationship with their abuser, the, the trauma that they've experienced, so... All right. And I mean, I, I, I thought about it. I forget if it was in Florida or if it was other states. I remember hearing about this a year or so ago that there was some legislation passed that allowed people that had experienced domestic violence to just sort of prematurely break out of leases without penalties. Are you familiar with that? Or? No, I'm not. Okay. But that, 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 that's, that's something that's really, really important. Yeah. Um, you know, very important. These policies that um, legislation have established are really important. And what I what I find that, you know, some of the things that do need to change is how law enforcement handle handle the these domestic violence calls, which are extremely dangerous for law enforcement. Right. But what I'm just seeing, like having a police report done, you know, accurately and provided for the victim. So that's tangible evidence that they can actually take to court. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times law enforcement didn't provide any type of, you know, written record. And that was really big and problematic for the survivor who is seeking out some compensation or some help or even just evidence in a court hearing. Yeah, and, I I also, mm-hmm. yeah. and also what I found is, you know, even in the, even in the court hearing, you know, that is a, a place of a complete, just without a perpetrator, their intimidation. And so, you know, judges, you know, that, you know, have the perpetrator in the court hearing as well as the victim, it, it traumatizes the victim to even be exposed to the abuser again. So I don't, I'm not familiar with, 
policies that have been passed or legislation that has been passed, but I do know what's how how negatively impactful some of these situations are in terms of re-traumatization for the survivor victim. So what are any ideas you'd suggest to make it better? You know, I think I definitely feel like law enforcement needs a little bit more training on specifically this population because they see criminals and these are victims. So they're not really criminals. They're they're victimized. So, you know, going to having a little bit more empathy and sensitivity training when dealing with a victim population is going to be really important not to not to indirectly re-traumatize the, the victim. Also, you know, separating the victim from the perpetrator while doing an interview, you think that that would that would happen. But in many cases, when I interviewed these survivors, that actually did not happen. And the abuser was actually an earshot of the victim telling their story and their abuse to the police officer. And they had to really filter what they said because they were just afraid of retaliation and yeah, I just thought of something, actually. It just it popped in my head right now. The, do you ever see the movie, The, the Red Pill? No. Okay. Well, have you, have you familiar with the, uh, the, the men's rights movement at all? No. Okay. It's okay. I mean, no. Yeah, but, it, but it's, it's a bit of a fringe movement about men feeling that they've got kind of feminism has hurt them. But there's this movie about that sort of chronicles them and different people about it. But one of the unique things that they that that they bring up that I heard uh, some of their ideas I think are a little wacky, but this there seems to be something to this point that they make, and they said a lot of the domestic violence uh, shelters don't really serve as a male victim; that they're very female focused. And what's yes. some of your any experience with that, and what your perspective on that? Yes, I, I agree. You know, when I was when I was working in the in the jail, what I was what I was really understanding that there's there is a rise, a huge rise with the the women's movement and the feminism of men being perpetrators of domestic violence, and it's it's there is a huge stigma for men being able to talk about their abuse that their and their victimization. With, the, with their their wives or their girlfriends or their partners that right. are women. There is a huge rise in that. And there is no shelters right. for domestic abuse for, for men. And there's not, there's not a whole lot of, you know, understanding about how men are victims and women are the perpetrators. Right. But it def- that definitely does, it's, it's definitely has been a, an increase in that in that phenomenon right. what about what about like same sex relationships do you see do you see any any unique differences or challenges for that, that population you know that is something that is more and more again more and more common but my in in my study i don't i don't have expertise in that right. area because in my study was only focusing on you know, females as the victims and a heterosexual relationship with them with a right. male. But there there is, you know, that's that's a research that definitely is, has, and needs to continue to happen because that is that's hugely problematic in same sex or you know relationships and males being being victim. Oh, also, what about the, the coronavirus now where people have been locked down and domestic violence in this current? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, this the, the, with this, the COVID-19 and people in shutdown, there's been a rise in suicide, there's been a rise in substance abuse, and there's been a definite rise in domestic violence. So there's there are certain services, from what I understand, that you can, this, this, the victim who can't leave their home and can't can't escape their 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 house and the abuse they can i think there's a way to, there's a an app i think that it's available that you can actually text to let agency or the domestic violence hotline know that they're involved in a in a serious dangerous domestic violence dispute or relationship so there's been there's been a huge rise that's one of the one of the rises that I you know I've experienced seeing due to the coronavirus. Yeah, but locally in your in your community, any particular domestic violence agencies resources that you really like that you? Um... Yeah, I, I do really feel that women in distress in Broward County has is a, has these wraparound services, the counseling, group counseling, you know, shelters that are just like super important. And, and they also have childcare, which is also very important. And they just, they're, they have wraparound services for these survivors in this, in this count, in this County, in Broward County. I think in Palm Beach County, there's ABDA, which is also a good type of wraparound services for victims in Palm Beach County. What about, um, I mean, they focus more on substance abuse, but they, I'm sure, as you know, they probably go hand in hand. The, and it's a female-focused program. I know I've, Susan B. Anthony Center. Yes, yes Susan B. Anthony is a, is, a big, is a big proponent of substance abuse and, and domestic violence victims. There, she's, that, that agency has been super helpful in the community. Well, actually, I know that we, we brought that up, but, uh, but uh, how do you feel that that uh, substance abuse interacts with the domestic violence and you know, some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I definitely feel that, that when you use substances, obviously, there's more likelihood to not have clear thoughts and right. clear thinking, obviously. So, there, you know, it becomes more volatile when there's a substances involved. A lot of, a lot of you know, perpetrators use substances, drugs or alcohol. And a lot of victims, you know, seem to sometimes need to only cope with the substances from dealing with the trauma and what right. they've experienced. So this type of inter- this type of interaction when intoxicated leads to leads to out of control behavior and more dangerous outcomes, in my opinion. Sure, but but related to that on a little bit of a different tangent. I mean, there's one of the big things if you've if you uh, oh, came across it with the the, the last election that in, in Oregon actually that they passed this this bill saying that to sort of decriminalize even like we're typically referred to as harder drugs like heroin if it's a, a small amount that uh, basically would give people the option of going to treatment and paying a fine rather than. You know, actually, a Broward, Broward County right. has a men, Broward County has a mental health court right. uh, located in the court system, and they also have you know the where the, the family members if someone who is the Marchman Act, the Marchman Act. Yeah, they, this is a little bit different, but but it's. I, I mean, I feel ultimately it was a little bit of um. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know how much different what they did is, it's just, uh, I think it's almost like a bit of a PR kind of thing, just saying that they're very progressive and stuff. But, but one of the unique things that, they're, they're, that they are doing is that they are, 
they're using the money that they, they generate from recreational cannabis to uh, to fund treatment for for these people, which is a unique. That's that's different. I, I, that's interesting legislation, yeah. and you know, in, interesting to kind of utilize that type of funding to. Well, I guess one of the things I've thought about is that, I mean, of all the drugs people use, I mean, they're, they're ones that maybe are, can be a little bit more associated with violence. So like alcohol is one, you know, is one of the most, you know, it's legal and relatively socially accepted, but that's of, yeah, comparatively to some other drugs that, that often leads to more violence. And I've heard, I remember hearing in terms of domestic violence that like during the Super Bowl is like one of the, the, mm-hmm. uh, percentage times when there's a lot of domestic violence going on. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, there is a correlation between like the use of substance abuse, particularly alcohol yeah. and the harder, the harder drugs that of, of correlated with the higher rates and rise of domestic violence occurrences. So there, I mean, you know, obviously when you, when you're intoxicated and you, or when you're using drugs, you're, you don't have all your faculties together. So it's definitely needs that needs to be treated as well, not just the relationship. Yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, I, I feel we have these biases that, that, that just because people use certain, like people could yeah, abuse substances and be very peaceful too, but that's often not talked about. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, obviously, there's different. I mean, the, uh, the body responds differently depending on the person to alcoholism. There, that you have. You know, actually people that, you know, are, are, who are socially, maybe have social anxiety when going out and they use alcohol and it really brings down their anxiety and it makes them become a little bit more social and more engaging. So there's definitely, you know, we hear about the raging alcoholic is what's been, you know, socialized and talked about, but we don't hear about like, you know, when you use alcohol, how that, you know, you become more social. Let's it brings down your inhibitions. You have a little bit more. Really what you look at the population you're talking about, like you said, a lot of the victims that you work with, they, they use it to cope, and they're not probably, not not most of them probably aren't violent. Say that again. Well, you were saying the victims that, that uh, a lot of them uh, used uh, drugs to cope with the trauma, and yeah, probably I'm, I'm assuming a lot of them probably aren't that violent or. or... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, some of these, some of these victims, you know, they, they, in terms of coping, they don't know how to cope with this level of trauma. So they use something, a numbing agent. And then, you know, they also, there's, it's very, it's sometimes it's not unheard of that a victim does then become the perpetrator because of the trauma they've experienced and not being able to cope with, the abuse that they're experiencing. Well, that's kind of, I mean, the thing about like the hurt people hurt people, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a popular saying, but I don't think that's my, my experience tells me that there, there are, there's a popular group that, that, that does is true for, but a lot of the hurt people are some of the, the kindest empathetic people and, 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 you know, don't hurt, don't go on to hurt anybody. And, well, I definitely, I definitely feel that, you know, it's because um, people are familiar with being hurt, you know, they, and they, they aren't conscious about not, not recreating the cycle of hurting other people. There has to be a conscious stream of 
thought processes to not repeat the pattern. It's very easy because their pattern is so familiar to repeat the pattern. Right. So there has to be a conscious level of like this, you know, this is something that I do not want to do in my, in my family or my relationship. And then, you know, it's easy to slip back into those familiar behaviors, but making a conscious effort of doing the opposite of those behaviors is pretty, is pretty significant. And it takes a lot of insight and, 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 and professional help to actually see that, you know, and now mental health is so, you know, there's no, with, with everything that's been going on, just with what's been happening in our society, just in this past year alone, mental health really needs to be destigmatized. And it's, there's no actually shame in seeking mental health services for anybody because everyone, everyone has some sort of issue and it's their issue. And sometimes going to friends or families isn't helpful. So I think the process of destigmatizing mental health in our society is, is, is really important. Right. And awesome. knowing that, go ahead. And if you, you, do, you do your own consulting work and, and if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how, how, what's the best, how do they you know, schedule an appointment? How do they get in touch with you? So I, I have a website. If you, if you Google Vec and Associates, you can get to it. That's my, that's my business name is Vec and Associates. And there is a way you can either call me and leave a message or you can contact me on my website and I will get that email and then I will call you. But when you, when, when a person calls, you know, I, I, and because it's such a hard thing to actually make that call, I try to respond as quickly as I possibly can to, to the potential client because it's such a hard call to make. So I don't let it sit and I definitely try to call back, even if I don't have availability, like a timely availability in my schedule, I call back, I try to call back every single client because that a potential client, because making that call is just a hard, hard move to make. So I, I take that very seriously. In and do terms you take, of take insurance, cash pay? How do you, how do you, I take, I take all insurances. I, there's one insurance, there's two insurances that I can't, I can't take because I can't get on their panel is Blue Cross, Blue Shield and AvMed. So I take everything else and there is a cash paid fee and also a sliding scale fee for, for individuals who right. need some assistance financially. And are you doing in-person sessions currently or just virtual? I, I think right now until the end of the year, I do confidential telephone sessions and I do HIPAA compliance telehealth sessions, video. I'll assess come, come the beginning of the year what I want to do. I, I personally, I don't feel comfortable wearing a mask and doing counseling. Right. My, I, would, I would definitely give my client the option come when the numbers start to go down a little bit as was what venue they want to use to do therapists, to do therapy. And I will adapt and adjust accordingly to what, they're, what they want and what their needs are. Any particular modality that you use? I am, there's three. There's three modalities in combination that I, that I work with. I am a, I'm a, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So I, I work, I, I like the REBT, the, the Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy by El, Albert Ellis. I really work with pers a person's cognitions and their distorted cognitions 
and how that translates to how they feel translates to how they act and behave. So the, the, I'm a very cognitive behavioral therapist, but I also add in existentialism, which is, you know, if it's, if, if it's trauma, right. if, the, if it's trauma, then I, I do a little bit of Freudian, but if it's like, you know, just life stressors, I really work on existentialism and focusing on the here and now and not looking so far to advance where there's anticipatory anxiety. It really depends on, my model really is not, it really depends on the presenting issues that come up when the client presents to me. And then I, the last thing I use is this empowerment theory is like making sure that they are having a good self-image, inner love, self-love, self-confidence and self, self-esteem that I really try to like promote and, you know, build up. All right. Can't think of it. I had, I had a, another thought, but, oh, oh yeah, I know. So what, what if, yeah, since the book came out, I know it, obviously it's a hard time. You can't really be this. Definitely you can do all the online stuff like this, but it's hard. The traditional kind of in-person get togethers are, are, you know, difficult to do now. So what are you doing to promote the, the book? And, and Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, different, obviously a lot of these conferences have either gone virtually or they have not gone at all. So my plan, you know, Rutledge, Taylor and Francis, you know, in terms of the contract, you know, asked me to write down some conferences that I wanted to do. This is pre-pandemic. And I wrote down a list of like five conferences that I wanted to attend to promote the book. But obviously we scratched that and we're doing, I, you know, with their permission, I'm doing, you know, podcasts, I'm doing, I'm doing conferences speaking conferences, academic conferences, where I can try to get in and present. So presentations via Zoom, podcasts, you know, that's right now, I don't, I don't feel comfortable traveling right now. And there's not a whole lot of conferencing going on face to face. Right, sure. Okay. So I guess people can find your book on Amazon or Taylor, Taylor and Francis's website. Yes. uh, Yeah, the the book is available. It's available on Kindle. It's available in hardback, and it's a it's available in paperback, and it's a, it's on Amazon. If you Google "surviving domestic abuse" in in that name, or just my name, Michelle Finneran, it'll kind of pop up. And then Taylor and Francis Rutledge's website is promotes it as well. Oh, speaking on that, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of any particular resources you particularly like on the internet for, for domestic violence that survivors can interact with each other at the peer level or professional. I mean, what, what, yeah, there's like Facebook has, Facebook has a lot of interesting and really interactive groups. So I, I find that I'm, I'm, I'm associated with some that are for mental health that are very interactive and exchange where people can actually talk. What I find is domestic violence survivors or domestic violence victims don't really start off participating. They do their own research. They do their own type of literature review and they read certain um, stories and just just to get a sense of they're not feeling alone. Right. So I, I know Facebook has a, a lot of different groups, different different Instagram followers I follow that have us that are just good mental health wise that are are good to follow. But there are things that you can type in that kind of do your own bibliography research 
or do your own type of podcasts and inspirational listening of self-help in this area? 